Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Yes, listeners, you're tuned into 3CR, I mean 3CR Community Radio, and I'm Iris and Thanks for Encyclodalia for the previous show. You're now tuned into Queering the Air. Um, I'm one of the members of Queering the Air. You can contact us on our Facebook page or queeringtheair at gmail.com. And we're interested in any feedback. And if you're interested in joining us as well, send us a message or an email. Um, first off, I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from stolen land. Um the land we're broadcasting over in um, Melbourne is the land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples. And I acknowledge that I benefit as a white person from white supremacy and ongoing colonialism over this country. And I'd like to pay my respects to Indigenous elders past, present and future. And I'd like to acknowledge any Indigenous queer trans listeners, including listeners that fall out fall outside of these Western categories. Um, and I and yeah, including sister girls and brother boys. Um, okay, so today we've got a really interesting interview lined up that I had with B from Undercurrent. Um, that's quite ranging. We talked about everything from this idea of love is love, romance, myths, to systemic oppression, the limitations of just talking about intimate partner violence in terms of violence against women, to prison abolition. Um, so yeah, like a lot of interview is talking about intimate um, violence in intimate relationships. So if that's the sort of discussion you're not you don't want to have at the moment, I guess tune out for about thirty six minutes. But we're not going to be going into graphic details. It's just going to be a general discussion. Um, cool. Um, I hope you all enjoy. And get something out of it. Once it on. Hello, listeners. This is Iris, and I'm joined in a studio here with B um, from Undercurrent. So, Undercurrent is a transformative justice organization based in west of Melbourne, NAM, that does a lot of um, community accountability and interpersonal violence sort of work often in schools but also outside of schools and, and and recently has been holding a number of workshops that's sort of aimed not in the school context but of the uh, wider context and is having a lot of conversations about interpersonal violence in LGBTIQ plus circles and more broadly than that too. Um, so I thought I'd um, first off say hi B. how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Iris. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Um, so I'm wondering if you could tell me a little b- bit more about Undercurrent's approach. Well, um, so Undercurrent's been uh, running for about eight years now, a lot longer than uh, I've been around. And I suppose the the central aim is to try to prevent violence uh, at the source by uh, challenging violence-enabling um, attitudes and beliefs. 
So primarily working with uh, young people in schools, universities and TAFEs, but also um, with members of the general public. Cool. Um, so I suppose at the moment we're hearing a lot about um, this sort of discourse about love is love, but I think like a lot of the stuff I'm hearing about undercurrent and yeah, the reality is that like a third of a lot of a third of intimate relationships in general are like abusive relationships, and I'm wondering um, if we just think about love in that way, are we camouflaging love when there's a potential for abuse and we have and stuff like that? Um, yeah, I'm not sure that's a very good question, but do you have any other thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's very pertinent um, in this time to be thinking about um, what we mean by uh, concepts like love and commitment, especially in a, in a cultural context where um, it's being insisted by the people who are running the Yes campaign, for example, that uh, not just that love is love, which is a bit of a truism, but that love is marriage, um, mm. when what we know is that marriage is actually a, a very um, ancient tradition rooted in patriarchal norms um, that enabled the domination and control of, of women and um, treating them as property. So um, for me personally, I can't speak on, on behalf of the whole of Undercurrent, but for me it feels... Um, that there's a lot missing in the debate around uh, marriage and that it would be much more useful to be uh, interrogating um, what uh, romantic relationships are actually for um, and how we can have relationships that are healthy and truly equitable both in the short and the long term. Mm, yeah, 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 I totally agree. I think that's like an important line of discussion and there's been in like a long history of queer feminist and anti sort of racist critiques of idea like ideas about romance that um end up in like power and control relationships and how they contribute to that mm. um and i think and if we're not talking about this like are we just gonna see like the same thing perpetuate and how are we going to stop it? Mm. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, the, another thing is, like, we live in a white supremacist, cis-sexist, ableist, and many other um, oppressive sort of systems, sort of society. Mm. And most of, us, most of us have to work under... under, under terrible jobs under coercive bosses or be bullied by job agencies under Centrelink. So, yeah, I'm wondering about why it's important to think about the context we're living in when we're talking about interpersonal relationships, not just them in isolation. Mm. That's, a, that's a great question. Um, and I think uh, because uh, intimate partner violence in our society is so under-acknowledged, um, people are often surprised and, and almost expressing disappointment when they hear um, the statistics about how, how common abuse in relationships actually is. Um, so as you suggested before, what we know is that in around a third of relationships overall, and even it's not a massively useful statistic, but um, 
as a talking point to say that uh, abuse is quite common. Um, people are often surprised, but actually when you think that um, we grow up in a world where uh, manipulation, coercion and domination are totally normalised in every aspect of um, public life, so in the workplace, for example, in the relationship between labour and capital or between uh, bosses and workers or uh, in our politics, for example, um, it's all of all of those cultural institutions um, totally normalise um, a particular way of looking at power, seeing power as uh, what we would call power over. So to to have power or to feel empowered in you know under white supremacy and capitalism means to be able to control other people by limiting their choices. Um, so if that's the only model of power um, that we're exposed to from the time that we're born, um, it's not surprising at all that when people come to their intimate or romantic relationships, um, that they strive to secure power um, in the same ways, essentially by um, controlling another person or limiting their choices. So I suppose on the one hand, we're always trying to see um, intimate partner violence in terms of an overall context of yeah, violent and oppressive uh, social structures, while at the same time um, maintaining always that the use of violence or the use of controlling behaviour is a choice and people do, um, while the context sets up particular constraints that people are working within, ultimately people who do use violence are choosing to do so and they could make different choices. Um, so part of our work is, is sort of continually um, holding and honouring that tension between context and choice. Mm. Yeah. And I suppose, yeah, it sort of it leads on to thinking about how we can change the context and how this is like um, it is is locked locked in with like thinking about the bigger picture and I suppose all the messages as we've talked about in terms of romance, in terms of one person is there to complete you and fulfill mm. all your needs and. I suppose um, there's the material sort of reality of today where like rent is rising and people have to, a lot of people have to work more and it's just like people are relying, many people are relying more and more on the intimate relationships and there's more and more pressure on them potentially. Um, and these, which means like can lead to people making there's always, yeah, as you said, choice there, but it's like, yeah, that, that there is like attention and that's a good point. And mm. like, like are there examples of contexts where people do like um, not abuse people as much? Is this like a totalizing thing? Mm. Um, and we know that uh, relationships that are equitable and respectful are possible. <laughs> I'm not sure if I could say, um, if I could name a particular uh, place in society where we find 
more or fewer of those uh, kinds of relationships. Probably the common theme um, among all of them is that uh, it seems that people who are capable of having um, relationships that are less abusive are probably people who have had the opportunity to come to think critically about uh, inherited ideas about um, power in society, for example, or about what um, what romance um, and love actually consist in. Um, but, yeah, I couldn't really say in, in general where you would find um, those people or those relationships. And I think it's, it's probably really important um, not to ever believe that there are particular people who are beyond reproach or who have all of this stuff figured out because nobody really does yeah. and it's a kind of it's a continual process of remaining open and accountable and working on your shit I guess <laughs> yeah 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 so picking up from that um yeah I'm thinking about things I've heard in queer circles, um, things like that our friends can't be abusive, that queers do consent better. And I'm wondering about if we could talk about how these common sense myths make tackling interpersonal violence more difficult. Mm. Uh, Probably, I would say in every case, um, the most uh, problematic thing about uh, myths and attitudes like that is that they make it more difficult for survivors of violence to seek support. Mm. So anywhere where um, there exists an idea that uh, violence doesn't really happen that often in these types of relationships or whatever, it becomes uh, much more challenging for someone who's experiencing violence uh, first to identify the experience that they're having as violence and and secondly to to feel confident that they'll be believed when they go to speak to others. Um, which is one of the most frightening things about um, seeking support around violence you're experiencing is, is worrying about whether you'll be believed and supported. Mm. Yeah, I think a, a thing that occurred to me in one of the workshops like, was um, how this is such like a social dynamics thing. If these like things are common in a circle, yeah, it does, as you say, mean that people won't be believed that like survivors the the violence they experience they're not gonna they got like they know from like how these myths perpetuate that um that accountability for the harm being caused is probably not gonna happen if people are just gonna take their friend's side or something like that mm. um so in terms of survivors and experiences of abuse are there patterns of who's more likely to experience abuse in intimate partner relationships or more generally in relationships that aren't like partnered? Mm. That's a really difficult question. Um, and I don't want to overstate, um, how much I know. Um, in many ways, uh, Obviously, we can speak uh, anecdotally from our experience and we can also um, 
make projections based on on what we know about the different types of structural oppression um, that people experience. So people who are multiply marginalized um, are in some ways uh, more vulnerable to um, abuse both and, and violence, both like in society generally and perhaps also in their intimate relationships. But the, I, I really should come back to the fact that there just isn't very good um, information about this. I would say like in the context of uh, queer relationships, like the research just isn't there. We don't actually know very much because no one has um, bothered to do the, or, you know, like it, it hasn't yet happened that someone has uh, taken the time to do the research that we would need to do um, to, to make really substantial claims about what's going on um, in regarding abuse in queer relationships. Conversely, we have, uh, in terms of uh, heterosexual uh, relationships, so or relationships involving um, a man and a woman together, there, there is, there is a, a wealth of, of, of pretty good um, evidence about this, which we can draw on to some extent, but which obviously doesn't uh, cover like the wide range of um, other experiences of abuse that, that people can have. Mm, um, yeah. So I guess like we don't have a lot of, yeah, we live in a heterosexual society where all these resources are put on heterosexual relationships and Absolutely. we don't have, we don't have like the data necessarily on them, but I suppose like we do know about anecdotes and we can talk about, um, power dynamics, I guess. And I'm interested in some of the stuff Undercurrent um, has mentioned about having conversations beyond consent, that consent is necessary, but it's not enough. And I'm wondering, like, what conversations do we need to have beyond consent and what makes it difficult to have those sort of conversations? Mm. What do you mean by uh, beyond consent? So I I suppose, like, in the context... Okay. In the context um, of that workshop, it was really, I think, um, about power dynamics and and I suppose, like, the pressure that is put on people, like, as an example, if you're a woman or a femme person, I suppose there's a power dynamic that you're expected to please someone or something like that um, and how that complicates consent or if you're a trans per- a trans person um, you, you have you might have stuff internalized about how your body is just like inferior compared to like someone that benefits from being cis I guess so mm. I guess like those sorts of things there's two examples and many more you could have about um, race and ability and stuff like that mm. and I guess yeah I was thinking about that in terms of a lot of I suppose the mainstream conversations about consent is if the person's enthusiastic and you're checking in and stuff but there's like potentially stuff that is left out um, as well from just focusing on that which is important mm. Um, mm. but yeah it was it was like an interest. It was a really interesting workshop, but we didn't even, we didn't really get to the like beyond consent part, and we we're like, 
we need to have these more of these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, in many ways, we always need to have more of these conversations. Um, yeah, I think th- those examples that you gave were were really good. Um, and in many ways, um, talking about uh, consent, just keeping in mind that uh, that overall social context of power dynamics that always exists uh, in some form between people um, because of their different identities and the different ways that um, they are privileged or oppressed um, at a structural level. When you're coming into an intimate situation with someone, yeah, it is it is very easy um, to imagine situations where someone uh, displays uh, enthusiasm for what's going on, uh, while actually what's going on for them is is a yeah a whole lot of internalized um, stuff maybe about like yeah needing to uh, feel. Um, wanted because they're so often told by society that they're unlovable or, Mm. you know, something like that. Um, And so I, again, I can't speak for the whole of Undercurrent, but I like to think of consent as an ongoing process of something that we're striving towards. So rather than just um, asking for someone's permission and getting it, it's this Mm. process that multiple partners are involved with or however many partners they are, there are of continually creating conditions where the other person or the other people can make the most free choice that they can make. Um, and that is, obviously that's, that's a very kind of broad and sweeping statement and there's a lot of detail to be filled in there. But I think if you're genuinely concerned with the social and structural limitations on the other person's freedom and the kind of power that you might be exercising over them even without realising it, then you can start to work towards um, making their choices freer, I guess. Mm, yeah, that's, that was very well put. Um, so, yeah, I'm thinking about another... Th- Another thing that's been raised in the workshops, I suppose, about the monster, the sort of the monster myth that um, that people that cause harm in inter- intimate relationships are monsters in some way. And yeah, I'm wondering, like, what's like some of the problems with that understanding? Wow, there are so many. <laughs> Um, I think I think the biggest one is that if we believe that some people out there are monsters, then it lets everybody else off the hook. Mm. So um, because you're the hero of your own story, and uh, in general, most people don't believe that they're a monster, although some people do, um, and that you know that's I guess for them to figure out as well. But in general, most people moving through the world um, believe that they basically have good intentions um, and they're basically trying to do the right thing by the people around them. Um, And that's true. Uh, Most people are basically trying to do some conception of of, of what they see as good um, with the tools and and resources that they have. But what we know is that um, there's 
so uh, so much of everything that we've been taught about what is good and right in our society is fundamentally uh, like violent or tending towards uh, abuse, coercion, and manipulation. So, um, so we collide in these ways that bring us to hurt each other. Um, and the problem, if we believe that uh, violence is being done by some people out there who are monsters, then we don't look at ourselves and the ways that we are complicit um, with, uh, with violence. And that's not just intimate partner violence, but all kinds of um, violence, like as a... Uh, as a non-Indigenous person living in Australia, like if you're not thinking yeah. about your complicity with colonial violence, uh, then you're not going to be able to act in genuine solidarity with um, First Peoples. Or yeah, I guess that's just one example. Um, another, a couple of other related issues with the the monster myth are that um, it's much harder for survivors of violence to identify what they're experiencing. Um, as violence and to seek help around it um, if because uh, 80, 80 to 85 percent of the time um, you experience violence from someone that you already know um, yeah. and maybe you already trust uh, and so survivors might feel that um, either that what they're experiencing can't be violence um, or that if they do talk to anyone about it they won't be believed because no one will believe that um, this uh, friend or member of their community is capable of violence because they don't want to believe that this person's a monster. So, <laughs> sorry, mm. <laughs> that was very um, long-winded. But I guess That's until okay. we can do away with that um, idea of the monsters lurking in the shadows, we we won't really be able to grapple seriously with all the different ways that, um, that we hurt each other every day um, and the ways that we have to work together, I guess, to overcome um, those structures of oppression. Mm. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, another thing that has come up in Undercurrent and its sort of evolution, I guess, are conversations around um, how, I suppose, most of the interpersonal sort of violence sort of sector is focused on this conversation about violence against women. And I... And I've read some some stuff about that, and there's like tensions in this understanding of just talking about gender first without other systems of oppression. And I suppose I'm I'm wondering what you might think about this quote. I I'm going to read from mm -hmm. this book called Queering Sexual Violence. That was edited by Jennifer Patterson, and it comes from a sort of intersectional feminist perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and I'm just going to start with it here. For me, part of the issue with the violence against women in inverted commas framework is that sexual violence is not just gender-based violence. And while it feels important to not only recognise that people with all different gender identities have both harmed others and have, and have been harmed by sexual violence, it's also recognising that sexual violence has been historically and still is a tool of racism, of economic exploitation of criminalization and state violence. And it is increasingly frustrating to see organizing for, for violence against women in, in inverted commas, because when I think about it, all the survivors I know or, or have engaged with over the years, not all of them are women and not all the perpetrators in inverted commas are men. 
not even close. When we expect all survivors to fit the mainstream survivor narrative, we miss opportunities to organize and mobilize in a larger capacity. And that's the end of the quote. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, do you have any more things to add to that? <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's a fantastic quote and uh, very well said. I'm, I'm not sure if I could uh, contribute anything by adding more. Um, I guess, uh, in summary, um, the reason that we are, we are trying to talk about um, violence in terms of overall uh, social structures of oppression like racism and uh, colonialism and heterosexism is that all of those things do intersect and um, and people yeah people experience uh, violence not just on the not just on the basis of gender identity but on the basis of all different kinds of identity and all of those violences are kind of um, continuous in many ways uh, with each other or, or not happening in in isolation from each other. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose like another thing that came up in that quote is talking about the state and and I suppose undercurrent comes from I suppose transformative justice perspective, which is quite critical. It's not like saying people can't personally resort to using the state, but it is pretty, like critical overall of what like seeking justice for violence from like the violent state. It's overall critical of that. I'm wondering if you could talk more about like the problems with, I suppose, carceral feminism, which is like Mm. the idea that um, we can solve intimate partner violence by locking um, people who have caused harm up and that sort of stuff. Mm. Could you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm glad that you you sort of flagged this in your question uh, as well. But just to 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 state it clearly, um, regardless of your uh, position on uh, carceral feminism or the carceral state, uh, we really want to hold at the center the idea that um, whatever a survivor of violence. Uh, wants or needs to do, um, we as a community need to support that. So um, if someone uh, if someone does want to engage with the, the legal system to get uh, whatever is like the best the best possible result uh, that they can see based on like um, their experiences and beliefs, then then that's something that needs to be supported, even if we believe that um, the, which we do, that uh, the prison system um, and the judicial system and police uh, are not um, a real solution to intimate partner violence. Um, but having said that, and broadening out to, I guess, transformative justice more generally, um, it's really clear that uh, <laughs> the prison system um, is not doing anything... like. It, not, it doesn't act on the, the key drivers um, of violence in our society and actually it only reinforces them. So um, it just responds to violence with a different kind of violence that is also um, 
highly uh, degrading and destructive and traumatizing. So the idea that um, by threatening state violence, you can keep people from being abusive in their relationships um, just doesn't make sense when we look at what actually drives um, abuse in relationships. So not only um, for, for me, I would say not only do uh, I find the prison system morally repugnant uh, for what it does to people, um, it's also just literally not helping um, survivors of violence to get what they need and it's not helping to reduce uh, rates of violence in society. So we absolutely need to, uh, even though this is like a long-term and very ambitious um, goal, I think we need to keep the uh, ideal of, of prison abolition or a future world without prisons at the centre of our work when we're doing this work. Mm. Yeah, this is this is very true. And um, we think about prisons um, and a lot of people of colour and Indigenous people have like pointed out how it amplifies white supremacy mm. and colonialism. And we look at like uh, the, like the incarceration rates for a lot of POC and Indigenous communities and how it just amplifies violence and yeah how we have to like center this like um point on prison abolition in trying to change the world Mm. um and yeah maybe i'd add to that uh the the great majority of um of women who are serving time in prison are uh are survivors of abusive relationships Mm -hmm. and very often the reason that they were or that the conviction that they landed them in prison was uh, was for something that they did when trying to defend themselves or survive um, survive mm. violence. And I think you could extend the same point uh, for a lot of people of colour and indigenous people who are in prison mm. um, in a more general sense. Yeah, yeah I s- and I suppose that goes on to another conversation about a lot of mainstream organizations have focused on hate crimes um hate crime legislation and i suppose a lot of there's been a lot of um a lot of people have criticized that as well because this idea that the state is our friend and is going to um like who's gonna get locked up by by these hate crime legislations we've seen overwhelmingly that like when people fight back from a position of marginalization, they're often like locked up. And the idea that, I mean, like the whole logic of locking up people as well needs to be taken apart. But mm. yeah, we see, it's just like, see this common sense idea of um, that that's some sort of solution to the violence that many people face because. Um, they're people of colour, Indigenous, trans, women or disabled and so on. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm wondering... um, I suppose, yeah, that also goes on to a lot of the mainstream interpersonal 
and domestic violence sector and and how difficult it is for many marginalized people to get support in it um could you like add anything to like some of those difficulties in terms of a lot of that stuff um mm. so one thing that was that came up in undercurrent that I was reflecting on is how I suppose a lot of these organizations um I suppose like there might be legal equality in terms of oh we're trans women inclusive but like often like this like the comfort of trans misogynist sort of cis women is like in practice comes up and trans and like they complain and trans women aren't ever really comfortable in that space um as one example mm. i'm wondering if you had like any others on limitations of oh my gosh <laughs> i mean yes absolutely uh and I guess as we as we touched on before, um, anyone at all who doesn't fit the mainstream survivor narrative uh, from the sort of um, violence against women discourse is going to face really huge barriers to to seeking support, um, to being believed, uh, to accessing services. Um, that example that you gave of uh, trans women accessing uh, women's services or women's refuges yeah. um, is is a great one. Uh, yeah, and in addition, obviously, um, people's other forms of uh, of marginalisation can make that really hard. So even uh, even if, uh, for example, we imagine a um, a women's service that was very emphatically inclusive of uh, trans women if the survivor of violence is a trans woman of colour and everyone Mm. uh, who works at the service or who is accessing the service is white. Like, that's also um, going to create an exclusionary or, like, very challenging um, dynamic. So there's there's so, so far to go in the sector in terms of providing adequate services and overcoming... um, overcoming those barriers yeah yeah there sure is um yeah um another thing i'm wondering if if you have any resources um books or anything um for our listeners to like who want to like read more about this or listen to more about this if you have any you would like to highlight so there's undercurrent what's the under current website yeah um Uh, yeah there are links to some great resources on our website uh one that um comes to mind when thinking about uh transformative justice and uh community accountability is the uh creative interventions toolkit which you can find on i think if you just search creative interventions uh online they have a whole lot of really excellent resources for thinking about um interventions uh into violent or abusive relationships yeah cool um so you've been listening to querying the air on 3cr community radio and i'm iris i've been joined with b in this interview and yeah and thanks for the interview b it's been really good and really um good discussion 
Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hand. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. Yes, subscribe to 3CR and support Radical Radio. Keep us on air because we rely on your donations. Um, I'm Iris and you're listening to Crania and I'm going to play you two songs and, um, and and they're both playing at Two Steps on the Water. Well, one of them is Two Steps on the Water and Two Steps have an album launch on Friday at the Haller and one of their supports is Boats. So I'm going to play Water by Bates, and then Can I Not by Two Steps in the Water. And in that bracket was Can I Not by Two Steps in the Water, and before that was Water by Bates. Um, I'd like to share with you all a thing I heard from Raina Gossett, who is an, um, an amazing black trans woman activist in the US, and she wrote a thing about David Francis's film on Marsha P. Johnson um, about the life and death of Marsha P. Johnson and highlighted that a lot of that film that David Francis was made was pretty much plagiarised from her work. So I think that's like an important thing to think about. If you see that film, I think it's coming up at the Tilda Festival. Um, yep. And and I'm just going to plug a few events because um, we're on Air 3CR Radio and we're near the end of the show. And coming up this Thursday is the Cocoa Butter Club, um, which is, which centres Indigenous and people of colour in a stunning performance night. Um, it's the third show, and it's on this Thursday at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent um, at 7pm, and it features Thando, Francis Hadid, Cezo Snot, Robuck Sayed, Race Rage, and D Flowers. So that's a really worthwhile event checking out. And another thing that's happening is Bardosa is taking over the tote this month, um, including every Sunday from 6pm. Um, and Bardosa is a, a really dynamic duo and and they have all women line, lineups. And to, today they have DJ Jenny plus resident DJ Mama Dosa playing hip hop and Afro beat, um, and as well as Bardosa and DJ Sister Sarah. And that's at the tote from 6pm. Um, so I'm just going to play you a, a Bardosa track now. Um, I want more. Um, thanks for listening to Cronia, everyone. This is 3CR Community Radio. Next is Hip Sister Hop. So stay tuned and listen to Sister's Eye. Bye, everyone. I'm Iris. See you next time. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.